Well, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 69. And we're going to read this psalm in sections tonight as we work our way through it. Psalm 69. Uh, This is not an easy psalm uh, either to read or even to understand. Uh, there is an interweaving of four players, you might say, uh, throughout this this psalm. Uh, one of them uh, is the psalmist himself, it is David, and he's going to relate situations in which he has been mistreated uh, by enemies and treated unjustly. Uh, we're also going to hear, um, in the midst of this, um, quotations or references to the story of Job, another another sufferer, and we could even call him a righteous sufferer, not because he was without sin, but because his suffering was not uh, caused in any way uh, by, uh, by his sin. And then there is Jesus himself. This is David's lament. It is Job's lament in some respects, but it is even more so the lament of our Lord Jesus, mistreated by his Enemies, I believe, following Psalm 22, this psalm has more references to the person and work of Jesus than any other psalm, after Psalm 22. And I'll just mention a few as we'll be working our way through it. Um, one is, is, uh, is in John, the, the second chapter, uh, as Jesus cleanses the temple, um, as he's doing so, and the disciples are watching, they, they remember something. Do you remember what they say? Um, Zeal for your house has consumed me. They're quoting, they remembered Psalm 69 and applied it, applied it uh, to Jesus. And then Paul takes the second part of verse 9, and he, he speaks, he speaks of, of the reproaches or the disgrace of those who have reproached um, God have fallen on Christ Himself, and then we see in uh, in verse twenty um, that um, the psalmist says, "In the midst of his despair, I looked for pity, and there was none." And that calls to mind Jesus' words to his disciples in Gethsemane. Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? And then finally, uh, on, uh, in, in chapter 21, uh, there is reference to uh, my, my, my great thirst and they have given me sour wine to drink. And that, of course, is referencing, uh, referencing Jesus on the cross, drinking uh, that sour wine that was offered to him. Uh, the church recognizes, let no one dwell in their tents, verse 25. They labeled that immediately as reference to, uh, reference to Judas in his, in his, um, in the response to his treatment of the Lord Jesus. So it is Jesus' lament. But besides being Jesus' lament, it is also your lament and mine. Uh, Paul says elsewhere, it is written down, all things in the Old Testament are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We are fulfilling in our lives now, Paul would even say, filling up the sufferings of Jesus. Sufferings that 
in one sense had been completed uh, in their in his vicarious atonement, but also that we, as the body of Christ, continue to suffer for his sake. So all of these things together, keep, we need to keep them all in mind as we begin to work our way through it. And I want to do this as simply as possible. We'll look at just, at just three different sections in this psalm, and we're only going to go halfway through. Uh, and the reason for that is, is its length, but also there is a very complicated and difficult matter that we need to deal with at the very, towards, in the second half of the psalm. And that is, how do we understand the imprecations of God's people against the wicked. We want to spend an entire message on that theme. So here, um, the psalm opens, be as simple and graphic as I can, it opens with this idea, Help! I'm drowning! Have you ever felt that way? Help! I'm drowning! Verses 1 through 5. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Many are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now, since the time of the early church, these first couple of verses have been the reference to the threatening waters and the overflowing floods, overwhelming floods. They have been been, been thought to refer to, and it certainly include Jesus' passion. Along with the rest of the church, we can see that this there is some poetic reference to Jesus' passion through His. Baptism. He would look forward to that baptism. It was a time of of great suffering when he was coming under the waters of God's judgment, much as the Egyptians did uh, in the time of the Exodus. So this does reflect uh, the, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also ours. And I want us to take a couple of moments and just consider what are various responses that you and I have to suffering. There are, um, this is a very emotional psalm. And in some respects you could say it's more emotional than many of us would really allow ourselves ordinarily to become. Our emotions we understand to be, to be wild and strange parts of us. Hard to understand, certainly hard to control, but part of us nonetheless. Now, there are some of us, and maybe we flip in these two categories, but there are some of us who seek to ignore our emotions at all costs, to suppress them, to press them down. And, uh, and, and, and even deny their existence or not really want to be aware of them. And these are people that we can call or we all can have this tendency of being stoics. And as we ignore, uh, as we, as we ignore our emotions, we actually lose an opportunity to know our own heart. 
our own longings and even our own pain. And what is the tragedy of that is then we miss an opportunity for intimacy with God. Now, are there some on the other extreme? And I do think, as I look at my own life, that I flip and flip on these two things myself. But in the other extreme is those who simply want to give free reign to their emotions. And, and they're, they're the, the attitude here is, I just don't want to be honest. I just want to, to be honest and, and authentic and true to myself. And so just give in to them wherever they may take you. Shrapnel uh, and the people around us notwithstanding. The problem here is that they are also missing out, but they're missing out on the opportunity to use suffering, to leverage their suffering in order to get to know God better. The psalmist here is very, is very vivid in his description of his emotional response to things, but he does not shy away from them. Instead, they are opportunities for him to deepen in his trust for God. So the, the psalm opens up really with what suffering uh, can feel like. And, and these are the words that really come out of Job's experience. Think, think of this now. There's, there's no place to stand. There is no solid footing underneath. The truths about God, we have sung tonight and prayed tonight and already considered tonight how firm a foundation we find in his excellent word. And yet there are times with the waters of this suffering that are flooding over the psalmist, we we seem weak and, and, and the promises seem wobbly underfoot. We seem out of control. God seems out of control. Life is more like a quickstand. And, and we get a sense of claustrophobia. The, the circumstances are closing in on us. And we believe whatever this is in our lives right now just can't be happening. Have you ever felt that way in a situation? This can't be happening. And so with verse 3, in verse 3, we, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim uh, with waiting for my God, waiting for God to show up and explain himself. And we've all perhaps done that and perhaps we've all had friends like uh, Eliphaz who, uh, uh, who, who said to Job, along with the other friends, but in this, this references to him, um, your, your trouble is actually your karma. That is, you are getting back what's coming to you because of your behavior. For these kinds of logicians, the Christian life is very simple, it is linear, it is predictable, and it is ultimately controllable. What you do, you, you get back automatically from God. But he goes on, sometimes life is unjust, uh, may be hated without cause, as verse 4 says, uh, attacked with lies. Pay, I'm forced to pay back what I didn't even steal. And these again reflect the words of Jesus. They hated me without cause, we read in the Gospels. In verse 5, David says, well, I understand, Lord, you know my folly. I'm not, I'm not pretending to be any, innocent. I don't know, we don't know what uh, example in his own life is being referred to here, but it could very well have been. It could very well have been what, what he did at the end of his life where he, where he wanted to have the, num, the uh, military men 
of, uh, of, of Israel numbered in order to uh, elevate his status or to, to, just, uh, to just find some pride. In. And you remember, even the military guy in his cabinet, Joab, said, you don't want to do this, David. And he said, do it. And of course, there was great consequence from that disobedience. But can we also see that these words belong to Jesus? Not because he himself was a sinner, but because he carried your sins vicariously. I want you to see. Look at verse 5 and and say, um, the, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from God. But instead, look at the work of Jesus here. Imagine as the, as the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, that there was smoke from the sacrifice, from, um, uh, smoke in the, from the, from the burning there, uh, from your most vile sins, your repeated failures of your most ashamed of. The smoke from those sins rises from the trash heap outside of Jerusalem and rise up to the nostrils of God, and He is satisfied with the sufferings and the death of Jesus there in Golgotha. So God, who knows our follies, has given us the Savior. Wonderful encouragement to us. And yet, and yet, there is still this drowning. The second prayer uh, that is going on here begins at verse 6 and ends down at verse 12. And I just want to read, I just want to read verse 6 here. And, and, and the point is here, um, when he's in the middle of suffering, the last thing he wants to do uh, is give in to self-pity. That's often our normal response to, uh, to suffering, isn't it? That's the very last thing he wants. He says and said, let not, verse 6, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Don't. This is his, his major prayer in his suffering. Don't let my response to my suffering cause other people to trip up. Don't let my reactions to this suffering derail others. And just as Jesus' suffering brings to others a a peace with God and, and joy, so may our sufferings be used of the Spirit to actually encourage people around us. And I want to mention just how, and I know many, if not all of you, so so profoundly um, influenced and affected by our dear sister Becky at the, at the passing of, of, our, of our brother and our friend uh, David. Just how she remained with that unspeakable suffering. How she remained in, in many, with much composure and quiet confidence. And it left us not marveling at her so much, but marveling at the comfort and the wisdom and the presence of God. May you and may I, in in our suffering, comport ourselves in such a way that people marvel at the goodness and the presence of God. Verses 7 through 12. Let me leave. This is, this is again in that section. Don't let my reactions derail other people. And, and this is a longer chunk, but beginning at verse 7. Uh, and, and this explains some of the rationale and some of the struggle that we have. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. 
That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Uh, all he is, what the psalmist is saying here is that some who reject God will reject his followers. If people have a problem with God, you're very likely to be a target yourself of some of that animosity. And, and Jesus opens it up in, in, with a psalmist, and Jesus himself opened it up. Zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. Do you remember that? Um, he went to the uh, he went to the church both in, the, in John two. This is he went to the church and uh, and and he overturned the tables. He disturbed people who were went to church in order to make money. So of course they were enraged. Zeal for God's house caused Jesus to act in such a way that those who went to church simply to make money and they were thwarted. They became enraged. I was thinking about this this morning as our brother uh, Danny was going, uh, was telling us about the birth of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and that Machen himself um, was, was not disciplined for rejecting the five fundamentals. Let's see if we can remember what they are. The five fundamentals, um, it's the inerrancy of Scripture, first of all. And then the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, the miracles of Christ, and finally the substitutionary atonement. Those, those five described as pillars, probably uh, other things certainly should be added to that, but, but those five fundamentals became prominent in the early, in the early uh, 20th century as markers for fidelity to uh, people's faith. But of course, Machen was not disciplined for rejecting any of those. He was disciplined for erecting the Independent Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, which was seen as a competition to the Foreign Mission Boards of the Presbyterian Church, cutting into our market share. Now that's something to discipline someone for. Stealing some of our some of our our, uh, our our reputation and our influence uh, in the world, and, and so it is that uh, that 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 just as Machen was reproached and Jesus here describes himself being reproached. So look at the second half of verse nine. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And David says that about himself. Look at me in verses ten and eleven. When I wept. And humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. That also is the word from, from Job chapter 30. But what, he, what David is saying here is that he was criticized for taking his religion too seriously. He was mocked for taking his religion too seriously. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly when he was uh, dancing half-clothed, um, his, his wife said, that's not dignified, and she just, that was enough, that, that, was, that was the end of the line for her. 
But even in his humility, the scripture says, his repentance seemed obsessive. His, his repentance, his acknowledgement and groaning under the load of sin seemed unnecessary and even undignified and inappropriate. I, that reminds me of something that occurred to me many, many years ago. I was preaching in Presbytery, uh, not in this one, but in my former Presbytery. And um, it was one of our meetings and, and just preaching there to the brothers and sisters and as, as part of that, I led in a prayer of confession. And I remember I used, uh, I used the fruit of the Spirit, which describes what each of the fruit, each of those, those nine elements, what, what they are. Uh, but then also, uh, the opposite, what that, the opposite of that fruit. And then, and then a counterfeit or something that we can self-generate that is not the genuine article. And I went, I just went through those nine fruits and what they are, what they aren't, and their counterfeit. And, and it was a, it's a useful tool to, to serve as an x-ray into our hearts to find out our motives and our desires to serve the Lord. It's a very humbling thing so that we can glorify God. I'll give you just an example that ties in with our text tonight. For, for patience, this is what I said. Um, it, it, what it is, it is, patience is suffering without resentment or retaliation. Its opposite is impatience, irritability, and anger at God's schedule and with others. That's the opposite, which we often fall into. And its counterfeit is laziness, apathy, and indifference. And so we prayed through, through that fruit and, and, the, and the others, and I can remember um, one of the brothers there met me um, as I walked up the aisle uh, to get a cup of coffee or whatever. And he had a sneer on his face. And he said, so you want us to repent, huh? And I was so shocked, I, I didn't even respond to him. Sometimes, what is it? it it's, there's a, we lose a sense of, a sense of dignity to repent and be humbled before the Lord? That's what David is saying here. And, and the reproaches of our holy God can be upon us when we live in, in that holy way. And so I think we can expect that loyalty to God to strain some relationships. As Jesus said, he came to his own and they did not receive him. So we need to be willing, even as Danny called us this morning, we need to be willing to follow what God calls us to in His Word, and that is going to require taking, that is going to mean taking some heat. I want to give you another example. Um, young people, I want you to listen to this carefully, um, and you can ask your parents to explain it later if you need to. Um, but um, I had a discussion with, with a young person recently about the idea of, of moving in with a boyfriend or a girlfriend before becoming married. And the argument was laid out. This is, this is reasonable. Um, everyone does it now. And if you were to buy a car, you would take it out for a spin first. You wouldn't just buy it and drive off the lot. It makes sense. Essentially saying, lighten up. Well, how do we respond to that? We respond to that by saying, the world will never get it. That laws aren't arbitrary rules 
to simply restrict our freedom, but they reflect God, they reflect our, our, ourselves, what is best for us, how we're made, they reflect reality, and they really are, are matters of safety, not matters of confining us. And besides that, if you move in together, you are playing against the percentages. Those who lived together before marriage have a greater likelihood of divorce, of separation and divorce than those who do not. So much for taking a spin before purchasing. God is wise. God is good. But you will be reproached for it. You will be mocked for it. You will be ridiculed for having that puritanical view. And yet, children, God is good. He is wise. Trust Him. The third prayer, uh, beginning, uh, beginning in, in, verse, in verse 13. Let me read verses 13 through 18. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord... At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. This third prayer, then, is a plea for relief. It is a plea for rescue. But notice the suffering is continuing. He has prayed much. He has said, I, t- I bear reproach in myself as those reproach you around, are around me and, and, and asking for the Lord to deliver him. And so far, that hasn't happened. We hear in these words something of Jesus' cry in Gethsemane. We hear very explicitly Job's cry for relief. And your passionate plea may go unanswered as well for longer than you would like. There are two things that this passage points out that I want to draw out to help us when we have cried out for relief and yet relief is not there. We've cried out for rescue and yet we continue to flail about in those stormy waters. The first one is this. God's steadfast love is good and he is always faithful. We know that. We, we count on that. We sing about it. We think about it all the time. God's steadfast love is good. Uh, many of us saw uh, the disaster relief video a few weeks ago. And I was so amazed and encouraged. I believe it was the Buddhist woman um, who had come, uh, been helped and rescued by, by our dear friends down there in Houston. And she came to church and she learned about chesed. Do you remember that? She's, she barely knows anything about Christianity, but she's already learned a Hebrew word that describes the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God and his people. 
because she saw it. She experienced it. And, and she was able to rest in that, at that, that chesed. The steadfast love, uh, verse 16, the steadfast love of God is good. His mercy is abundant and he never turns his face away. That's the first thing, and, and that's more common. We're, we're ba- we generally accept that. But what helps, us, uh, what helps us to thrive, even when we don't see that steadfast love in action the way we would like, what helps us to be able to, to thrive in that, we see in verse 13. Let's go back up to verse 13. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, or you might say at the time of God's favor in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me. Wait, I I am willing to wait for the right time. I'm willing to wait for God's timing, the time of His favor, the time that pleases Him, the time that is acceptable to Him. Let's go back to Job in verse uh, in in chapter uh, in in chapter forty two. Um, do you remember what Job says? He finally sees God, and remember that he is undone. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I'd heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I, I'm now uh, um, uh, appropriating you with greater clarity than I was before. And therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's basically saying, if I had seen you before the way I do now, if I had seen your steadfast love then then the way I do now, how could I have railed against you? How could I have railed against your plan? How could I have railed against your timing? When you see God, who brings brings relief to us at His acceptable time, you are able to, to cling to his steadfast love uh, even in the midst of that suffering. And I, and I want you to consider also Jesus, these words uh, from Jesus. Remember in Hebrews chapter 5, this is what the Lord Jesus says, or it is said about him, in the days of his flesh, and it's describing certainly the language of the psalm, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And yet the next verse goes on to say, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So it was through his death. God did deliver him from death, didn't he? But it was not from death. It was through his death. And therefore, he was able, uh, he he glorified the Lord uh, following that time. And even the Son of God learned obedience through what he had suffered. I want us to conclude with a couple of thoughts from John Newton. Uh, remember, um, Remember one thing he said about the pruning knife of God. Everything that is necessary, he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds and just at the right time. That is, there is no cut that is too deep. There is no cut that is arbitrary. Uh, each, 
Each cut from God is necessary and it accomplishes God's will. And he concludes with this thought. Unbelief talks of delays. Unbelief talks of delays that God is is missing the boat here. Unbelief talks of delays. Faith knows that properly there can be no such thing. No such thing as a delay from God. No such thing as God missing an opportunity to rescue me because I'm really tired. But at just the right time, He calls, he, he, he delivers us, He rescues us, and just like our Savior, we are able to experience that glory from God when we have gone through the suffering to which He calls us. Let's pray. God and Father, tonight we are humbled before You as we think of those who have gone before us, Job and David and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, Jesus Himself, uh, undergoing enormous suffering. And yet it is so easy for us to whine and say, why me? Lord, we pray that you would use these words tonight, use this psalm to shape us into men and women and boys and girls who are able to wait for you Wait for the acceptable time of the Lord and be strong day by day. Be strong on the foundation of your word. And let us keep our eyes upon Jesus, who for the glory that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And as that obedient son as that Son of God learned obedience through the things that He suffered. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.